Hello there, friends. I'm Richard Kisnan. We all knew it was coming. Adulthood. Relationships and marriage, business, health, money, bills, fitness. If you're like me, we didn't think that life would come at us like this. I welcome you to join me for raw, authentic, and hopefully really fun conversations about coming into your own as an adult and to help you create a powerful life of your design. This is the Adulthood Revisited Podcast. Hey there, AR Nation. I've got a quick announcement I'd like to share with you. It's about an incredibly powerful, high-ticket marketing community that I'm a proud member of. It's called the Super Affiliate Accelerator. This program's absolutely for you if you want to be successful online. Whether you're a beginner looking to get started with an online business, and also if you already have an online business but struggling to reach your goals. The Super Affiliate Accelerator is run by three experienced and amazing coaches. Between the three of them, they've sold millions of dollars in products and services online across all different industries. Why I find the Super Affiliate Accelerator so powerful is because of its unique all-in-one blend of a proven training program, weekly coaching and mentoring from an amazing group of accomplished internet marketers, and a private mastermind community of like-minded and supportive business owners and professionals. For a limited time, the SAA coaches are offering a complimentary business strategy call. So whether you're a coach or consultant, if you provide professional services, or if you just want to start an online business, but you're confused or overwhelmed with where or how to start, I invite you to check out this incredible program, the Super Affiliate Accelerator. And you can learn more today by visiting richardkistnan.com forward slash SAA. Again, that's richardkistnan.com forward slash SAA. Now, let's get to today's amazing episode. Hey there, friends. How's it going? Welcome back to another episode of the Adulthood Revisited Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Kisnan. I am so thrilled that you're here spending your time with me wherever it is you are in the world doing whatever it is you may be doing. I truly appreciate it. If you haven't already done so, if you can do me a huge favor after you check this episode out, head to wherever you get your podcasts. And if you can share, subscribe, Leave a rating review or a review. It'll do so much to help this show grow, spread the message, spread the love. And again, from the bottom of my heart, I truly appreciate it. I am super stoked for this episode and sharing my guest with the AR Nation. Uh, my oldest friend, someone that I've known since round the way I was, <laughs> my oldest friend, one of my best friends. Uh, we are brothers, grew up a couple blocks from each other been through so much together, and I'm super excited to share him with the world, with the adulthood revisited nation. Uh, so I am proud to introduce and welcome to the show my friend, Sean McNair. Sean, how are you doing, buddy? Rich, I'm doing well. Thank you for having me today, man. Yeah, man. So I, I want to dive into your story and really flesh out. A, we have a lot of conversations on a daily basis um, about all different kinds of things. And so I, I really want to touch on some of that because it's always been the case that, and I, I'm not the only person that feels that way, but your, um, your vision and how you operate the world, the rules in which you navigate are, are simply amazing. And I think I, I know that I admire you for that and people in our world that we know uh, together, same thing, like everyone's amazed and inspired by, by how you operate and the way you are in the world. Um, so with that, let's start with maybe a brief introduction of who you are, what you do, and how you got to where you are today. Sure. Well, um, 
Hi, everybody. So I'm Sean, uh, Sean McNair, and I actually um, am from Brooklyn, New York, and uh, from what we would call the hood, right? <laughs> um, you know, I don't usually say that much, but I think it's important to you note that because it is a huge part of my story. Um, I am, I work at a lab, laboratory in a large cancer hospital, and I diagnose, I actually, not only do I help assist doctors in diagnosing tumors and doing different prognostic studies and indicators, but I also um, teach a program which also trains people how to do this. And it's a collaborative program between the cancer hospital and a very large uh, city college. Um, how I arrived at that story is, is obviously a myriad of different factors. Um, you know, I was the typical guy who wanted to be a doctor. You know, that was literally the easiest thing. Hey, you're smart. You're good at science. You're good at math. So, you know, it's time to be a doctor. And, um, you know, that, you know, was the goal. Even while we were at college together, that was the essential goal. But uh, I realized that, um, you know, very, you know, a very similar story emerged that it sounded good, but you know, it didn't, I didn't feel it. My heart wasn't there. And I actually got a little lost. And also, I think some of the studies, you know, some of the, excuse me, some of the struggles of, you know, someone who grows up in, you know, a rough neighborhood or a rough environment and tries to transition into this big, bad world where, you know, you now have to be part of the professional world and you have to get perfect grades. And, you know, it's a world that you never really saw a lot of those things started to really um, affect me. And, you know, I didn't know what path I would take, but uh, essentially I enrolled in a program, a cytology program where I learned how to diagnose cancer under the microscope. And after that, that was about, I would say that was about 12 years ago now, I would say that uh, a fire was ignited in me to kind of learn the world and learn how to navigate in the world and also really understand my own place, how my history, my not just my personal history, but my family history, my culture's history, how does that play into the way that I think and the way that I feel and who I am and, you know, and try to use those things as, you know, just pillars to say, well, here is my pillar today. Here's the way I felt today. But, you know, what progress can I make in these things in the next five or 10 years? And, uh, you know, just try to grow and evolve as a person. And I think today, uh, you know, I, one of the things that I was able to shed, one of the, one of the small, but very large issues that I was able to shed that was that in order to kind of rise up quote unquote from you know where I came from a lot of that was you know it was all dependent on if everyone understood my profession understood what I did or the attainment of professional success like that was the way as soon as I did it then it means boom you are now worth something in the world because you are this exposition and um, I'm happy to you know one of the you know, points that we'll, we can definitely uh, expand on is that I don't feel that way anymore. I actually do feel that uh, a lot of the growth and a lot of what I feel is valuable to me as a person 
is happening outside of my profession and I'm bringing into my profession and actually bringing value from the outside in instead of saying, well, I have this title, which, you know, I have this title or I have this salary. And now that means I mean something to the world. I, I truly appreciate you sharing that. I, and there's a lot there that I want to unpack. Um, first is like the hood, right? You and I grew up in, in East New York, Brooklyn. And for whatever reason, one of the most like known as one of the most notoriously, da- whatever, dangerous neighborhoods and whatnot, I, I tend to disagree, but it, it's, maybe mm-hmm. I'm a homer. Mm-hmm. Did you ever feel that because of that or, or framed differently, has that impacted you along the way? And like, do you carry some of that with you um, as, as you've gone into your profession in psychology, particularly in the healthcare world? Mm-hmm. Of course, of course. I think um, that answer is obviously very multifaceted, but I think really my story personally has always been the story of just understanding that you know, this person who I was when I was younger and who I was evolving to, into when I was older was always going to be this mixture of these different worlds that I was crisscrossing into. Because yes, although we were from effectively the hood, we were also separated from the real hood in, on, a, on an academic level. Because as you know, you and I were both in some of the accelerated classes and some of the best programs within the neighborhood. So we were fed different messages. We, you know, were told different things and we were also exposed to, you know, different cultural nuances. And um, I think that as I stepped out, truly stepped out of where I came from and I, you know, came into the healthcare realm, one of the things that I realized is that um, this is way more, it's not what I thought, what I, what I just, what I envision, what you envision is white coats and parties and, you know, and just no politics. And, you know, you kind of get blindsided to a few of the things that you're not aware of. And obviously this is by no means saying that, you know, I do not like my profession. I think I, I really do love what I do and the opportunities that I have, but I do think that this idea that, you know, this, as soon as you achieve or you get this degree or you get these credentials, it just automatically means you're just a God. Um, I think that that is just not what I see in everyday practice. And I also do work side by side with physicians. So I can personally be able to say that that's not what I see. And it's actually very comforting. It's actually very comforting. Um, Also, I think one thing that I always thought was that, you know, I would have to be perfect. And there was this, this idea of perfection. And yes, I, I do work with many perfectionists. And um, I, uh, but we also, I also work with a very, very, very large and growing number of healthcare professionals who always warn to not let perfect be the enemy of good. Um, and also do not let perfect be the enemy of innovation and change and improvement. And uh, I think, yeah, coming from the hood, certain that would be the one, those would be the things that really uh, strike, strike me coming in our profession. Um, also, another thing, as I really think about it, I think that there was just a, there's a lore 
there's this allure that like you're here you know I mean as a person and everyone else is so much above you and I think that I am happy to say that I, I don't feel that way anymore um and I can walk into a room of surgeons of nurses of the president and I can feel like I could have a conversation with them and I don't feel this air of inferiority which I think you know plagues not not only people but I think particularly people like me a person of color a person who isn't you know who just hasn't isn't used to navigating these environments at a young age and uh, I think that I'm more comfortable with doing that now and um, it's appreciated. That's awesome. Actually, we'll, we'll come back. I, I think there are some things that I'd love to talk to you about uh, with respect to relation, like for people of color and how, how it is navigating the world. I, I do want to hop back to family life. Um, I, I know that my experience, and, and you may be aware of this, like my experience has been tempered growing up and even, even to this day as a lawyer and trying to do other things tempered by being a first generation American, right? That comes with like certain limits, mental beliefs that I feel like I'm always challenging and always having to, to wrestle with. Mm. You, like you are the first one in your family to reach certain level, like c- college education or your professional title, like the s- standard bearer in your family, um, I, at least like to the extent that I'm aware of. How has that, have you felt anything with respect to that? Uh, has it been a, something weighing you down, like a burden that you've never wanted to carry? Or have you managed to, if you felt that way, somehow pivot it into a stepping stone and, and to fuel your ambition? For that, I'll give you a two-step answer. And as you were asking the question, the first thing you, you had said is, do I, did I feel pressure? Hell yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, I think that the pressure was immense um, to succeed, to be something and to not let your family down. I think that, you know, it's almost like saying that you want to be a NASCAR race driver, but you're not really sure how to handle the car because what I didn't understand and honestly, what my parents, what my family wasn't able to quite communicate was that you know, there are components of your journey which really aren't just an individual thing, right? It's it's not how hard you study. It's not, you know, what grades you get. It's not how much you smile. It's not all of these things. There were just certain components of the journey that were going to be difficult and they weren't really able to convey that to me. But essentially what happened is particularly in uh, undergrad, I had a very, you know, rough undergrad. It was just not the college dream at all. Um, But what happened was, is that I just started to pile on myself and basically say that, you know, I'm a failure because I, for some reason, am not finding my passion in wanting to be a doctor and also, you know, uh, you know, a little side part of my story is that uh, as you guys, as we graduated college together, however, I started my college career um, at, you know, Howard University, uh, which is, you know, one of the most famous um, 
uh, African-American institutions in the uh, country. So, you know, each step of the way, when I started to discover myself, I also started to feel an immense ton of guilt, you know, and that was difficult to wrestle with because the pressure of, of, of being this check the boxes kind of person, real smart, high grades, um, and now you're going to go to the college that your family wants. And then after that, you're going to get the credentials. Um, but there were so many different components lacking in, you know, for me to actually get through that journey that I, I had to reverse course very quickly and realize that if I'm going to take the wheel now, um, I think I better drive in the direction, in the direction that I plan. Otherwise I'm going to crash going in others' directions. And your second part of the question, I think, as you said, how would I react to that? Well, I think it transitioned from, you know, guilt and shame and, you know, into just, <sighs> I think I almost went to the exact opposite where the fire to be successful um, was lit once I started cytology school and uh, the first few years out of my career, I had such an insatiable desire to be um, successful that it consumed me. Um, I was your workaholic. I was the person who would do any and everything. I would say yes to everything, every set of extra hours, every assignment, every project. I just wanted to see somebody. I just wanted to prove to the world that I was worthy. And I think that it started to consume me. I did my master's degree while going to school, um, but while going to work full time. So, you know, and there were times where, you know, I burned myself out. I numerous times just really saying, you know what, well, the world doesn't care about burnout because these are the things that I need to do to overcompensate for the failure that I thought that I was honestly for not making, you know, for, for things that just obviously, as I know now are, you know, not necessarily great, um, great labels of success or failure. So definitely a lot of overcompensation, a lot of burnout, a lot of difficult nights, um, a lot of uh, asking myself, is this really worth it? And, and uh, you know, uh, I think that that's unfortunately something that, you know, many people in my situation will, will definitely go through. With respect to this part of your life, right, your educational journey, your professional journey, um, managing the expectations of your family versus people outside of you, whether it's friends, teachers, colleagues. What would you say to yourself to like Sean 15 years ago, or even, you know, more realistically kids right now, right? Adults who are like, we're not the first people. You're not the first person to go through that in today's world. So people who still live in East New York, who um, you know, I want to start the conversation like this because, and I should have prefaced it this way, something mm. that I remember in a, a fellow student of ours said in eighth grade, and this thing like burned in my memory. It was English class, eighth grade. And this, this one female student said, she was like, I don't know what happened that day. Teacher said, get, get, get into your seats. And she didn't want to sit down. And her response was, teacher, like, we're from East New York. We're never going to make it. We're never going to make it out of here. 
And so like, I think that statement for me encompassed a lot of that economic issues, social issues, yeah. no, having no, no vision outside of maybe what our, our parents like can think of, but what would you tell again, younger you right now to, to, I don't want to say better navigate those issues, but so that you don't feel burnt out or someone who, who's there right now in East New York, like not sure if they have this thing where family and friends are, are putting these success, six, the formula success equals, and there must be labeled, there must be a certain salary. Uh, what's your advice to them? My advice, honestly, is, is to really um, expand your network of friends and family. I think that um, I'm lucky because, you know, my, my parents pretty much gave me carte blanche to be who I was, to be who I am, and to kind of map my own journey. Um, but simultaneously, as I was growing up, you know, uh, there were those voices, what are you doing? Why are you speaking like this? Why are you trying to achieve? What is the, what's the end goal here? None of that is necessary. You know what I mean? Let's go play ball. Let's smoke. Stop all that studying stuff. You know what I mean? Because what's the end goal, right? So those, you know, you, I was able to grasp those messages at um, an early age, but I would tell myself that um, work on your person, work on your person. I think that I, I felt that all of who I was as a person was based on these external, um, you know, barriers of success. And, you know, I work with a lot of unhappy doctors, Rich. They make a lot of money. They have all the notoriety you could think of, but their lives suck. And, you know, I think that's just something I didn't really grasp until later on. And, you know, the salaries, you know, I listened to a well-known financial um, guru who says doctors tend to be the brokest people. They just don't have any money because they make this large salary, but their networks are usually, networks are usually horrible, horrible because of other, you know, things, because they're fed the same messages that I'm fed. You know what I mean? Except they just have more dollars to, you know, deal with that, uh, to deal with the, uh, the falsehoods that are in those messages, you know? And um, that's what I would tell myself that, you know, this is, you got to play the long game. And I don't know how you can teach a young person to play the long game. I don't know how to do that. I think parents, if they could figure it out now, they'd be real happy. But I think that I wasn't playing the long game. And I also didn't understand what a complete, what complete happiness looked like and what complete, you know, completely valuing yourself and your nuances and your kinks and who you are. And also, you know, realizing that the formula for happiness isn't dependent on salary or professional title or any of those things. Um, that's what I would tell myself. That's pretty powerful, man. I mean, I think right now I've shared this with you. Um, I've spent the last several years, like really working hard on exactly that. And I'd probably do the same thing, tell 
my younger self or if I were like leading a group of kids in like uh, a, a mentorship day and say, work on yourself, like trust, trust who you are and, and do the things that make you happy. So that's, that's hugely powerful. Um, I want to turn a little bit, little bit now to your professional life, right? In your, in your particular career, because you have uh, in your day-to-day, a very interesting cross-section in the healthcare space, both in the, on the academic side and also in the clinical side. Um, so maybe share a little about like what that looks like from the inside. I'm always like, I'm personally always fascinated with the, the look behind the curtain of how things mm-hmm. are operating. Um, like, you know, I, I was just at, at a hospital yesterday getting some blood work done and, you know, the, from the outside, I'm like, why is this like taking so long or why is like, why so many, so many steps involved in checking so i don't like whatever but Mm -hmm. there's a lot that we don't you know outward facing you don't know what's going on um so maybe share a little bit like some of the highs and lows that you see both in the academic and the clinical side yeah i i have one of those weird jobs and my job is weird and every time i go into work including tomorrow i'll continue to say that my job is completely weird uh i will tell you um the experience from the clinical side first Um, there's no secret that healthcare is filled with administrative burden. Um, And I think that's created an interesting paradigm. And uh, it's just something that I'm going to speak on. Healthcare is a melange of people who are really, 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 really good at administrative duties and administration and create more administration to further their type A personalities. And then there's also the melange of type B personalities, which is your, I am here to just give the best patient care without any rubrics, right? And yeah, obviously I'm a B guy, I'm a B guy, I am not gonna lie. Um, So honestly, when you mix education in with that, you have a very interesting, it's almost like an invisible fight. It's like an invisible fight. Um, Even where I work at the top institute, you know, one of the top institutions in the country, there's always this pressure to balance administrative burden and, you know, the, the speed that needs to happen to get, you know, patient work done versus the slow meandering and not so congruent world of education. And also, you know, you also run into a, another issue. We work in healthcare so that we work with a ton of intelligent people, which is a blessing and a curse. Because when you work with a ton of intelligent people in in a setting that they're comfortable with, they don't want to learn new things. And teaching involves innovation, particularly in the times of COVID-19. So I believe that um, it's almost like a little tug of war with a few days in between of perfect cohesion and balance. And I've been able to navigate both worlds, um, you know, Better than I think at day some day, at days, but uh, it it looks weird, Richard. That's what I can tell you. It looks very very strange. 
Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess no, no, no workplace, right? I mean, the law, the same thing. You're not, you're not exempt from, you know, that tussle between people wanting their way and people wanting to like fulfill on a particular mission statement. So I hear you on that. One thing I, I, I want to ask you about your clinical experience, and it's something that I've, I've been curious about for some time, and I don't know if I've ever mm-hmm. asked you this. Because you work a lot in, in the clinical side in terms of diagnosing and helping to diagnose particularly serious conditions. Mm-hmm. How, how does, do you ever feel like the emotional weight of that when, I mean, maybe over the course of volume and time, like patient files, it's like file, patient number, account number, whatever. But like sometimes when I read cases, for instance, I, I try to look at it as this was a, this, this could be a person in my office. Like these are real people. And then, so you, you put their specimen underneath the scope and maybe, maybe not, but let's assume maybe that there's a confirmation of a particular diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Like how, what's that experience like for you? Well, uh, I unfortunately can recall this particular situation numerous times um, in my life. I think that, um, well, just to answer your question directly, it's an awful feeling. Um, it's an awful feeling. I think, uh, you know, uh, in my particular profession, we do have the ability to literally uh, make some of these interpretations almost instantly as soon as the tissue is taken out of the patient. Um, so we're able to know. And, you know, sometimes there have been situations where, you know, it's um, it's a child, and the child is is one of the child a child of the employee, or you just saw their mom walk into the OR, and you just walk into situations where you're like, this this is so painful, you know, um, and there are also times where I've made interpretations on slides that have probably saved someone's life, literally, and I think that. Once I really understood what part, what role we could play in saving a patient's life, I think that I became, you know, I, I, I said that, you know what, my job is to become as competent as possible in this realm, because even if that patient doesn't know exactly who I am, I am working for you, I'm fighting for you, and, you know, I'm going to be able to to do something and have, I'm, I'm sorry, there's just, you know, I tell the stories to my students all the time of moments where my eyes absolutely saved someone's life. There's no question about it, you know? Um, and, you know, that's a big responsibility. So I feel the weight of it when we know we see something awful or, you know, we report on things and we follow up in patients and we see that they've passed away. But there are numerous times that um, I believe that, you know, we've really saved people's lives. And I also think um, on terms of the clinical standpoint, a very interesting thing has happened. I have also become a, almost a proxy or a facilitator of medical information to those who don't understand it. And coming from, you know, coming from a community in which, you know, there's a lot of distrust in healthcare system. I think that I've been able to really talk with my family about, you know, different healthcare issues. And for, you know, some of my family members who have had serious diagnoses, I've been able to be the person who discusses with, 
you know, my family, you know, what's it looking like? Or have the surgeons or the doctors call me directly and they say, oh, you, you understand everything I'm talking about. And then they just unload everything and say, well, this is what's exactly what's going on. This is, you know, where they're at. And I'm able to bring that information back and kind of package it up into something that my family can understand. And I think it gives them peace. So I'm really happy about that as well. I found that as, as a lawyer, one of the surprising skill sets that I've had to hone and really become good at, irrespective of the kind of case that I deal with, is like counseling. Just like being able, which is for me has always been challenging, like mm-hmm. being able to just listen in a certain way. Are there certain skill sets? Like, I don't know who's listening to this who may think about maybe they're in a place for a career change or maybe they're in the place where they're, they're younger and they're thinking about what do I want to be doing? And they're hearing about, you know, cytolo- becoming a cytologist. What are the surprise, maybe skill sets that you've, you've found you've had to strengthen to do your job at a, at a high competency that you maybe originally didn't, didn't assume or think about? <laughs> There's this assumption that because we work in the lab, because we work in the basement, we are the weirdest, most antisocial people that you could ever meet. When in actuality, my social acumen has been the key to propelling me into, you know, greater heights in my career. Essentially, you know, it's the antithesis of what you're taught. You're taught, go to school, get good grades, get the title, do good at your job. All of these placeholder checkmark values, right? But society is really placing emphasis on soft skills now. Communication, eye contact, nuance. How do you deal with adverse situations? Communication, all these things, which (laughs) I don't remember having a lesson on this, do you? Because this was not taught in school, okay? Um, And it, it for some reason, I've always prided myself on being a social being, you know, if I'm in a room, nobody knows me, I'm going to sit down next to somebody and talk to them. Simple as that, you know, I'm going to say, hello, how are you? You know, I'm Sean, et cetera, et cetera. And we're going to talk about something, you know, and I think that the ability to walk into any room and to discuss, be able to, you know, show true interest in people and who they are in, in their lives and, to just you know enjoy the pleasantries of 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 human communication has really propelled me and i didn't think that would be a skill that really mattered much i actually thought it would be well how much could i regurgitate from the books or how smart did i sound or you know what i mean those are the things that i really thought mattered and you know they don't they don't they don't it's really a new set of skills that are emerging in which, you know, I, I, I've really mastered and honed those and I continue to really work on those. And in terms of what I do now, which is not just on the clinical side, but also on the teaching side, connecting with people who don't look like me, they're not my age, they're not of my, even my, you know, I'm getting a little older now, so they're not even of my, you know, same uh, generation, you know, they're looking at things I do and they're like, you guys are weird. And I'm like, okay, whoa, you know, this is different. But um, I think that that ability to just connect with people 
on a greater level and also to be able to convey why I am who I am, what drives me, what, what, what pushes me forward is something that has really, really come up even in the little, even behind the microscope in the laboratory. It's so interesting, you know? I want to ask you about an article that we, I mean, we kind of, I think you shared it um, from Vox about sort of the, the systemic challenges that, that people of color face in whether it's finances, education, in the workplace. Um, what, I guess, like, especially right now, it, it's, it's been a topic of conversation every news channel, every, I mean, we just saw one of the craziest, we're coming out of, I, I don't know if I've ever seen in my short life, like a presidential election like that, mm-hmm. and the things that occurred. What do you say, is this a conversation that you have with people in your life, um, and, and particularly in the workplace? Because I, I found the, in that piece, in that article, it was really interesting about the people they interviewed overcompensating, dressing a certain way because they want to set a standard mm. and the burden also of setting a standard uh, for, for people of color, whether you're black, Hispanic, whatever the case is. Like, have you ever felt that in your work? Um, maybe going back school, like the, the magnitude of that? You know, one of the reasons why that article hit me so hard is because I think the last five years, it wasn't until I assumed, assumed the leadership position that I realized the burden that I really carried for the first 30 plus years of my life. Rich, I cannot, all I basically told myself was at first to not pay attention to these burdens. But I think that, you know, for a disenfranchised, um, you know, culture such as mine, where the means of acquiring wealth and acquiring success, being redlined, not being able to live in neighborhoods that would, um, you know, hold value, being, you know, given not given opportunities to own, period, because that just wasn't something that was in the cards for, you know, um, my family. And I think all of those things really basically snowballed into the debt that I acquired um, for from college. And I think really what happened in, for the next 10 years that I held that debt the burden is really just blaming yourself and literally saying, well, what could you have done better to avoid this minefield, right? It's like, well, I, I missed this one mine, which is, you know, I was able to get into good schools and I was able to get good grades, right? But, you know, clearly, 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 I, I was never really aware that, you know, those were not the necessarily determinants of, you know, success and wealth building and happiness. Let's just be real, happiness, right? Um, you know, 
and just speaking freely here, uh, you know, the article hit me because, you know, I really started to think about the blueprint that we were told to follow. Where was that coming from? Right. This idea of, you know, just rampant individualism, it works in a vacuum. However, the history of my family, my own history, the neighborhood that I lived in, the walls that I slept in, all of those things were determined by larger factors than just, um, you know, oh, this is where we wanted to live. This is what we wanted to do. It wasn't freedom. It wasn't freedom. It was consequence. And I started to really learn that. And essentially, I've been trying to take the next five years, the last five years of my life and try to turn my life into a series of consequential decisions as opposed, I mean, uh, decisions based on freedom uh, as opposed to decisions based on consequence. And I think that the journey there really involves understanding so many different things. And it's more things than, you know, someone that, you know, is not a person of color or does ha really has to worry about because um, the, the saddest part about it is that uh, many of those things occurred and most people aren't even aware. They're just not aware. They didn't know it was happening. Redlining, they had no idea. Just live here. You know what I mean? Subprime mortgages, well, this was the best mortgage I could get. You know what I mean? Um, in terms of investing, well, I got a union job. We're not going into the stock market. You know what I mean? And then the union jobs are going bye-bye. So it's a different world to navigate now. And I think, you know, to understand how brutal our history was and to understand why our generations move towards security. And it's also, you know, the realest part that as the world changed again, they weren't able, you know, our families weren't able to necessarily give us all of the tools as to what's going on now. They were always able to say, well, in my experience, in my experience, in my experience, and while I appreciate the wisdom, there were just a few, you know, small details that, <laughs> you know, I was not able to um, comprehend. And uh, obviously, you know me already, you know, we talk about this all the time. Um, I can't follow the blueprint of the 1960s Black family. I can't do it, you know, even I cannot do it, which is basically go to school, get good grades, take out all the money in the world and spend the rest of your life paying it back and not really accumulating wealth and happiness because we won't find it in the workplace. You won't find it with the title and you will not find it when you realize that after you, when you die, you really only have your negative net worth to pass on to your kids and you're not building a legacy and you're not doing any of the things that you really set out to do. And obviously, you know, another thing that article pointed out is that, you know, as you become you and your singular middle-class salary becomes the, you know, the standard bearer for the family, you realize that there are many other forces, you know, that are disproportionately affecting you and your family around you that you also need to be aware of to help them navigate. It, it's such, it, it, it's an interesting conversation, right? Because I, like, I feel a lot of the same things in my family. Like my, while I admire same thing, the wisdom that my parents and my family, like my aunts and uncles shared with me, like they, 
they only knew what they knew and they didn't know what they didn't know. And like the choices that they can help, they tried to help me make were the cap on that was their, their, their world. Right. Like to this day, my, my dad doesn't even text, right. He doesn't know how to mm-hmm. like, and that's what I was guided by. No, no fault of his own. Like he's just that, that's what his world is. And so it's, it's such an thing, like how people who are like you this, had to figure it out on your own. People place, and this is just me talk sharing from the outside um, about what I've seen in your life. Like people place these desire, their almost their desires on you. Like get, Sean's going to get the education. Sean's going to get the good job. Sean's going. Meanwhile, like you were then, you were given that that roadmap, and then like sent off on your own to figure it out, which is which is such a, a challenge. And I mean, I'm not shying away from it, right? It's it's the de- the cards we were dealt, but like it, especially in today's world, to expect us to, when you're always like. You, as we're looking for new opportunities, you realize, wow, there's this, there's worlds of opportunities precluded from us just because of that. It's like s- systems that we're not aware of um, and our families mm-hmm. weren't aware of. It's, it's very interesting. Rich, I think one of the things that, you know, you touched on is just, you know, this roadmap and you have these expectations put on you. One of the things that I love about what I do for a living is that the regular Joe Schmo has no idea what the hell I do for a living. And I actually was worried about that because I was like, oh my God, how am I going to be able to show people I'm successful? Because, you know, everyone has to understand MD. It, it has to be doctor. If I'm not a doctor, then forget about it. No one understands what I do. Then I'm not successful. When in essence, you just said opportunity. And in the past five years, you know, I've looked at this idea of innovation being the other, being different, you know, I'm so happy that I'm not just the standard MD with $450,000 in debt, because that's exactly how much I would have borrowed if I went to med school or more, you know, and, you know, pulling in my 200 grand and saying, well, hey, look, I'm a doctor. I don't have any money, but I, but I'm a doctor, you know what I mean? Um, But now, I really look at the innovators, you know, I, you know, look at people like YouTuber, MKBHD, people who are going into spaces that people like me, who look like me, just may never, their parents, because they knew what they knew, would not tell them to say, you be you, and you go into whatever space you want to go into, and you tear that space up, you know, regardless of what that space is. And now I feel like I've got, gotten momentum in my own career path to say, well, instead of just going down a road that, you know, is being traveled by many, go down the road that's being traveled by none. Innovate in that space and show yourself. And it's working um, in my current position where I'm able to navigate this extremely odd odd position, which is so odd that even the institutions themselves don't even understand how much I work for, you know, each institution, but it's okay because at the end of the day, we're a results oriented society, right? Hey, you're the guy who's able to teach people and to be able to get clinical work done. So you know what, we're going to pay you for both and we're going to give you further opportunities for growth and you help us let us know what that is, you know? 
Um, I'm very thankful for these opportunities. And, you know, although, you know, they may be hard to convey to someone who under, only understands doctor, nurse, doctor, nurse, doctor, nurse, doctor, nurse, um, I go to work every day happy um, that I'm, you know, being able to make a, an impact and, you know, really do something different and to grow and grow my knowledge and just grow my other life skills and also grow as a complete person as well, not just as this box of what, you know, this professional should look like, you know? Something that I want to ask you because about, about you as a person, and I, I do not know of anyone more so than you who, irrespective of the situation, no matter how down it can be, whether it's a valley, whether it's peak, like you have a smile on your face and you like make the, like your positive outlook on everything. Sean, I've been dying to know how do you maintain such a positive outlook on it? Because I admittedly am a curmudgeon. You guys know that. <laughs> and so I've always wanted to know what is your secret sauce to be such a like bright and, and positive person? Rich, that is hard. That is a hard question because there are dark days, my friend. Trust me, there are definitely dark days. I think ultimately it goes back to looking deeper into who I am and to what drives me. I, I am, my happiness comes from the smallest things, you know, uh, you know, this Sunday I went to visit my mom and, you know, just deriving your happiness from human interaction and not the accumulation of stuff, not, you know, other pillars of self-worth, I would say would be the first, 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 first thing that comes to mind. Because I knew growing up, I wasn't able to, you know, I wasn't able to directly control where I grew up, where I live, how much money we grew up with. Those things weren't under my control, but I could always, always control how someone felt around me, you know? And I, I think that for me, it's always been important to say that if I want to be around people to make me feel like the world isn't this horrible place, I have to be that example. And does that mean that I'm unnaturally happy? No, but I am a morning person. I do wake up in the morning. My wife knows, she knows I have a lot of energy and a lot of happiness and she's not even awake yet, you know? Um, and my coworkers know it. I walk in and I say good morning and I make eye contact with everyone. And I just believe that you can't want things without first setting the example. And, you know, I, I've disarmed some pretty mean people in my life and they've actually like, well, that was pleasant. Well, how are you? You know? And I think that, you know, also, you know, it, it may be kind of cliche and say, well, well, you don't have a lot Just think of what you do have, but it's not even like that. I like nice stuff. I like having money and things like that, but there's nothing better in life than just being able to, you know, be around people and to have meaningful human interactions. And it doesn't matter whether that's a stranger on the train or whether it's your best friends or whether it's your mother or your grandmother or, you know, cousins you haven't seen. I just believe in 
meaningful human interactions. And the only way to foster those is to get people to open up. And I think that's really why I've been that way. Oh, don't worry. I have my doomsday days. Trust me. <laughs> I'm working on it. We're work in progress. <laughs> oh, gosh, Sean. This has been super fantastic. I mean, I was super excited for a long while to have you as a guest on the podcast. But you, I mean, there's a reason why you're like a brother to me, why we're best friends. Like, you're so insightful. You're so positive. You've got like just, and, and the way you, I guess you're, a short way of putting is your ambition, man. I, I, I admire it close up, knowing you for such a long time. I admire it from far away and just seeing all the things you've done and how you're just a steady ship, man, a steady ship on the ocean, getting to your destination. So I'm truly proud to have you as a friend and, and proud of all the things that you've accomplished in your life. Um, as we're wrapping up, if people want to connect with you, what are some of the best ways that people can reach out to you? Um, so you can, you can, so I have hobbies. I like my hobbies. I'm going to plug myself because, uh, I love amateur photography. So you can follow me on Instagram at Sean's photo bridge, S E A N S and photo bridge. Or if you care more about how I convey pathology and cytology, then you can follow me at S McNair 0328 on Twitter. Um, those are my two handles and uh, that I, you know, I like to kind of, you know, be creative on. Uh, you can find me LinkedIn, Sean McNair as well. And, uh, you know, you can see some of my professional uh, endeavors there. Um, connect with me, you know, definitely tweet me. You know, I definitely look forward to having meaningful conversations, particularly in the realms of professional development and in innovation. Um, I love looking to people outside of my profession for this because you guys, you being an attorney, our other friends, you guys are so insightful and you give me so many different tools to navigate through my career and uh, they've really been helpful. Super awesome. Definitely link that up in the show notes. Again, uh, Sean's photo bridge on IG, Sean0328 on Twitter and LinkedIn. Uh, Mr. McNair, thank you for your time. Before I let you go, if you have any parting words for the AR Nation. AR Nation, this is the adulthood podcast, right? And, uh, you know, Rich and I are navigating this journey along with you. This is a journey. It's not a sprint. Do not, do not expect this to just become crystal clear tomorrow. And as a matter of fact, that's the fun part. I've learned that. That is the best part of this all. Enjoy the ride, guys. Once again, Sean McNair, thank you so much for your time, energy, insight on this conversation. I had a blast. I'm sure the audience will love it. And until next time, AR Nation, take care, be well, bye for now. Hey there, AR Nation. Before we go, I wanted to remind you of the Super Affiliate Accelerator. Whether you're looking to get started with an online business or if you're struggling to see the traction you've been hoping for in your current online business, the Super Affiliate Accelerator can help you see the success that you want in your business and in your life. The Super Affiliate Accelerator is an all-in-one, high-ticket marketing community where you'll get access to proven training, weekly coaching and mentoring from seasoned and accomplished marketers who've sold millions of dollars in products and services online. 
as well as access to a private mastermind community of like-minded and supportive business owners and professionals. Right now, the SAA coaches are offering a free complimentary business strategy call. So if you're ready to build a strong and profitable online business and brand, take advantage of the complimentary business strategy call today and learn more about the Super Affiliate Accelerator by visiting richardkiston.com forward slash SAA.